With the advent of the Band 6 paramedic and the increasing demand for and size of student paramedic courses across the UK, more and more paramedics may be taking on the role of practice educator or more commonly referred to as a mentor. There's a variety of training and educational opportunities available for practice educators, but if our experience is at all reflective of the national picture, many practice educators will be learning through trial and error and experience to find their mentorship technique. Whilst there is guidance out there on what it means to be a practice educator and the theory of education, much of this doesn't give advice on what to do on day one with your new student. That's why this month we're examining mentorship. We're looking at what things you can do to get your student off to a good start and sharing some of our experiences of being both mentors and mentees. So let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh and I'm a specialist paramedic in critical care. My name is Simon. I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. And uh, this month we're doing everything mentorship and we've got a guest to speak with us and give some really valued input. So uh, we've got Sarah. Sarah, I'll let you introduce yourself and uh, tell people a little bit about your background and, and why you're here speaking with us. Hi there. So um, I'm Sarah and I'm a lecturer in paramedic science at UEA um, with responsibility for um, organising placements and supporting mentors out in practice and supporting students out in practice as well. But I come to this as a um, paediatric nurse as well. So with an interest in pre-hospital care, so have a quite a wide range of experience to, to bring to this from both hospital and pre-hospital environments. Yeah, excellent. And there's there's so much crossover, isn't there, within the literature between, you know, paramedic mentorship and nursing mentorship. And I and I definitely think the majority of it is from a nursing background and and, and applied to student nurses. So uh so it's really interesting to have that that crossover. Uh and you um wrote to us and suggested uh an article and a and a podcast on on mentorship a little while ago and and we thought it was a really good idea. So we're gonna do this as a two parter in this one. We're going to look a little bit around the theory of mentorship and we're going to talk a little bit about role modelling and and a little bit of that mentorship theory and very much look at day one, you've got a student, what kind of stuff do we need to be thinking about and how do you know when you're ready to be a mentor? And then the second one, we're going to talk about feedback and particularly around failure and managing that situation, which is a, a really sensitive subject, but but as we were talking uh, off off air, uh, a really important one for us to get right and, and a really important one for the profession as a whole. Yeah, indeed. It's, it's funny you should mention about the um, literature. When I did my mentorship course years ago, there was no paramedic literature on mentoring. So I literally had to base all mine on nursing background, which was, was really useful. So, yeah, you're right. There's definitely a crossover. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about some of the theory because that's always a good way to start a podcast, but we aren't going to focus too heavily on that. There's tons of theory out there and there's a lot more about educational theory that uh, people can go away and look that we've linked to in the article. But we'll probably just have a conversation around what actually is the job of a practice educator or a mentor? You know, is it to supervise? Is it to teach? How far do they go? And I think the College of Paramedics put it reasonably well using their zip theory. 
which is what's in their practice educator handbook. And, and the whole idea is that the student, if you imagine them as a zip and they've got medical theory as one piece of material and, and medical practice and all of the experience that comes with that. And they they have to, over the course of their three-year course or whatever it is, have to join those two together. And the job of the mentor is is a bit like that zip handle to to just provide the momentum, to provide the the sort of the guidance and, uh, and 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 the force to help that student bring the two sections together, which I think puts it quite nicely. But also, on the other hand, that doesn't make it any clearer what your specific roles are. So. Um, I don't know what 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 do you guys think what where where does the mentor responsibility start and where does it end I do, do quite like zip theory I like the fact that you're sort of seen as pulling everything together and that bridge almost if for another analogy between sort of what's being taught academically and sometimes not necessarily but then put into practice and how it's applied in real life and the nuances especially in sort of the pre-hospital environment where it's sort of less black and white than perhaps a classroom is you're operating in those shades of grey and sort of the different ways and nuances of applying that theory because we know we know from experience that there's actually more than one way to do this because that having that knowledge and be able to work it through. I know when I look at my job role of you know doing my second master's at the moment in advanced practice and and part of it is is that the master's itself is very generic it teaches you the core skills of things like patient assessment of diagnostics and pathophysiology but actually I then need to do a significantly large portfolio of practical experience which is seeing patients on the shop floor overseen by a consultant lots of discussions with a consultant lots of reflections on that and improving practice over over years and and I think that's what's really important the theory is really essential the practice is really essential but they have to be utilized together you cannot have one without the other and I, I tell people this a lot that you need good quality academic learning and alongside good quality experiential learning and if you have poor quality of either of those then actually you you don't turn out good paramedics at the end of it and i think that's what the you, you know the, the the theory in a nutshell is is saying the the onus is very much on the student to bring those together but but your job as a practice educator is to provide that men, that momentum and that and that that force to to sort of keep them moving in the right direction and, and act as that guide and that will take various forms for different students so sometimes that will be leaning a little bit more to traction towards the medical theory side of things so you might have to sit down with them and say okay let's go back to basics let's go back to you know Eindhoven's triangle with an ECG and electrophysiology uh, and point them in the right direction with that but you also might have to do quite simple things as no you're putting v6 in the wrong position let's go over your your your, your placement a little a little bit more and 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 get you doing ECGs on more on more patients um and something that I read is is that your role is very much as a facilitator. So you need to facilitate that learning in, in various ways. And I believe very much when it comes to mentorship, I believe very much in the in the notion of safe mistakes. And your job is to facilitate safe mistakes for your students. And, and that's what your, your role is, is to recognize when the student is making a mistake and then make the very the, the difficult decision about whether or not you inter- need to intervene with that. And clearly, if it's something where a patient might come to harm or, or you know, it's going to cause a critical delay in care, then then you do something. But 
But actually, we all learn, and me particularly, learn from making mistake and then troubleshooting it and then figuring it out. So that's another part of our role that is very nuanced and, and can be quite difficult to, to sort of get right. I think it's something that the, the ambulance service in general struggles with at the moment, as does a lot of um, nursing profession and allied health professions. When we compare that to medicine, doctors and medics are taught from early on that they learn from their mistakes they're very reflective they're very what happens what went wrong let's talk about it okay how can we improve that for the future go and look at this go and look at that and it's deemed as a positive process whereas actually I still feel although we've improved a lot in the last sort of 10 years I still feel that the error is considered something that shouldn't happen and unfortunately that that cannot exist in 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 any sort of medicine whether it's pre-hospital care in hospital medicine whatever you have to have error in order to learn and it's not just um, about error. It's about sort of it's about that learning, isn't it? It's about allowing the students sort of ha- and also that balance. How far do you allow your student to go before you do step in? It's a case of can, are they going to sort of turn this round, and um, how much can they learn from it? And that's what I think we'll talk about in a little bit, won't we? About um, different types of mentor and about support you put in. But yeah, errors errors are essential for learning. Um, but it's that that level of error. Something we'll probably talk about more in the second episode, um, but I wonder if you can touch on it briefly now, Sarah, is this this idea as a gatekeeper to the profession. What do we mean by that? And, and what's your view on the practice educator's role as a, as a gatekeeper to that pin? So academically, students um, potentially are very, very, very good. But sometimes at practice, there, there's areas of improvement. And over the course of time, it could be that the university is doing their part. However, the, mentor, the mentors are, you're seeing them on the front line. You're, you're seeing how they perform with patients and seeing them in those areas, shade, those shades of grey that I mentioned a little while ago. And um, sometimes you are the only person, if you don't think they're doing particularly well, that are going to be then um, saying, actually, no, you're not ready to qualify. You need to either reset your placement or ultimately, potentially, um, no, you're not. You're not suited to be a paramedic. Sometimes that doesn't happen until the third year, when pay, uh, when students are about to go out to practice, and that there's that final hurdle of, are you ready to be an autonomous practitioner? And that comes down to that one mentor sometimes, and that is quite a burden to bear. And we'll need some support from that. And we'll talk about that more about how we can support the mentors with that burden and stress around that because it is a very stressful situation to find yourself in especially with a third year student that's about to qualify that's supposedly about to qualify I can completely agree with that from anecdotal experience one of um, being a mentor who's had to fail someone at the last hurdle um, or, or earlier on in their program you know someone who's had to leave the course because they weren't suited someone who had to repeat lots of placement it's a very hard decision to make and, and actually as a person you feel awful but we have to remember that we, we need to keep people to standards the, these people might be looking after your family and and it's really important that we make sure that they they meet the requirements of the profession and uphold the professional responsibilities and and the competency level that we 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 need i was failed on my one of my final placements in my third year as a student paramedic um and actually you know it it's not always a negative thing sometimes it makes you better because you can go away you can learn and you can in, in, improve and as hard as that was at the time, it made me a better paramedic in the long run. Yeah. And that goes back to what I was saying a minute ago about that sort of learning from failure and learning from mistakes. And that gave you that extra time to, to that sort of develop and 
find your feet and become sort of the autonomous practitioner. So that's a little bit about theory. We're going to talk a bit more about the right things to do and and some of our opinions and our experience about how to uh, know when you're ready for mentorship and and how to be a good mentor from from day one but it's probably worth touching on some pitfalls of mentorship briefly to cover them because I think if you can recognize issues it's a bit like cognitive biases isn't it some people feel well putting a name to something does that really help but I think if you understand a little bit about what you want to avoid uh, and and you can put a name to it and put a category to it it's sometimes easier to recognize it in yourself because we're all you know at risk and probably guilty to an extent of of falling into some of these mentorship pitfalls so I'm going to cover something and we've linked to it in the article called Darling's Toxic Mentors which you'll see in some of the literature when when discussing these these pitfalls so darling breaks it down into avoiders blockers destroyers and dumpers uh, and i've added one myself which is coddlers and that's something that i think is relatively common within the ambulance service so we'll talk touch on that in a second so the first one is avoiders and this is the elusive practice educator who isn't particularly available to the learner and isn't particularly available to the student. This is probably more common in bigger areas such as a hospital where you may not constantly be with your mentor uh, and the student might have to chase them down for sign-offs or for one-to-ones or something like that. There's definitely something to be said about when you take on mentorship or you become a practice educator, you have a responsibility for that student and you, you need to okay, you don't need to be available all hours of the day, but you do need to make yourself available for them to to meet their needs. It's one of my slight issues with, and I don't know if this is national, but um, for, from ambulance services that I know that are making their newly qualified paramedics as part of their transition between a band five and band six, that they must be mentoring. And actually, whilst I do think that part of your professional responsibility in your HCPC standards of proficiency, you should be mentoring students. I feel that forcing students onto people when they really don't want to be mentors is sort of, it's bad for them, but it's also bad for the student. We're going to end up creating avoiders if we force everyone that, oh, if you, you can't have your band six unless you're a mentor. So I, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but sometimes I just feel that that enforced mentorship is not necessarily, you, you have to want to mentor and you have to be keen to do it because you have to put in a little bit of time sometimes, you know, it would be nice to be paid for everything we do, but there are times when you have to do a little bit of work in your own time, I think, as part of your CPD, as part of your development and, and as part of mentoring, which is part of that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Not so, not everyone is a good mentor, and especially in that NQP period where you're um, really trying to sort of find your feet, find out how it all fits together. The added pressure you've suddenly got of having a registration and you've lost your safety net as well. So it is a really stressful time. What we often find from a university is those heads that are out there that are, are NQPs are normally really up for it. They really want to share their knowledge. And having a student does really consolidate what they've learned in the last few years. So it's got, it is a double edged sword in, in that respect. In that it's a case of an added stress when they're already potentially at their limits sometimes, um, getting the hang of everything. And then, but it also it backs them up and it consolidates things. The other sort of great thing about being a mentor or sort of a head in sort of pre hospital environment is that it 
having uh, students who come out of university, they're more likely to challenge and question. And um, it's a great way of keeping up with your CPD because things change. We know that we can't keep up with everything necessarily. And they can go, they'll go, well, why are you doing it this way? Not as in a, um, what, what on earth are you doing as a mentor? But in, well, things have changed. We were taught in university that this has happened or whichever education route they're going. And it's a really good way of keeping up to date with your CPD. And that, that, kind of brings us on to the second point Sarah which is uh, around this notion of blockers talking about people that that may have been a bit intimidated by students that are constantly asking questions or constantly challenging them uh, based on what they've previously been taught or beliefs that they's held to be true and blockers are practice facilitators that that actually block learners access to to their knowledge and and block learners access to their supervision and you you would hope that no one is deliberately doing this and you would hope that it's coming from a subconscious uh, viewpoint if it's happening at all but but that's something to, to to be aware of and and I feel that it probably comes down from a from an area of intimidation to this new knowledge and this constantly changing uh, constantly changing data set that you, you know we we were told when we were in uni you'll qualify and two years later what you were taught here a lot of it will probably be out of date and I, I think two years was a bit of an overestimation to be honest yeah and and it's not even um I don't think it's even done deliberately but I, I, I've anecdotally seen it on ambulance stations everywhere you know you you'll get people oh you don't need to know that you don't need to know that you don't need to know that and actually the further I've gone through my career, the more I've realised, actually, at some point, I do need to know that. There are nice-to-knows and need-to-knows, and I think we definitely need to make sure our students are learning the need-to-knows, but we should also try and encourage the nice-to-knows where it's possible. Yeah, I think it's also the students not necessarily, not necessarily knowing when to ask questions, when it's appropriate to ask questions, and sometimes they'll just ask constantly, and others, they'll save it all up in this case of, so what patient was that again? So it's out, then out of context, which also makes it more difficult to answer questions. So it's for the students as well to sort of find out sort of now in the middle of CPR is not the time to question why you're doing this with the waveform catnography. For, for, for instance, it's a case of work. We can park that. We'll come back to it later. And I'm not saying students would, but it's just a sort of extreme example. Moving on to the next couple of points that Darling mentions, and I'm going to group, group these together because they seem to sort of coincide a bit, and that would be destroyers and dumpers. So destroyers are practice educators that would use, Darling says, overt challenges and overt tactics such as humiliation and that ends up destroying the learner's confidence. And dumpers are the type of practice facilitators that I think are probably more common that believe in a bit of a sink or swim attitude to, towards their students and will often leave the, the student in deliberately uncomfortable situations where they are very out of their depth because probably because that's how they were taught and it worked all right for them so they're they're gonna do it to their student probably not remembering how unconfident they felt when they were new and how uncomfortable that was and time has healed how embarrassing perhaps that that situation might have been this is definitely something that I've seen in practice with uh, mentors and it can also be quite difficult to 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 get correct because you're part of your job we've been saying part of your job is to facilitate learning and to allow safe mistakes and part of your job is to know when your student is just feeling underconfident and they can do the handover to the trauma team and it finding that balance between putting them in a situation where they're way out of their depth or 
giving them encouragement to take the next steps into the deeper water can be quite difficult. So that's something to, I think to bear in mind. I think I've been guilty of that, actually, especially um, more in like simulation, where I've, I've generally had a belief at one time that like stress inoculation was just to push and push and push until like the student cracks because then they'll develop better. And actually, it's completely the wrong way to approach it. It's really not an appropriate way for people to learn. And, and you know, you subsequently realise that actually people don't learn. They then switch off and shut down. So what you, what you need to do is back off the pressure, slow it down. Something in a real life situation might be, OK, just intervene, just help and just support or, you know, back them off. Um, but obviously in a scenario, it might be just stopping the scenario and then going, right, so let's just talk through where we are so far take the pressure off and then try and carry on so that there's actually learning because students don't learn if they're under too much pressure they'll just they'll just shut down so one of my tips was and I think I used to use this with you Josh is to have an agreed pre-phrase with my students so if they became uncomfortable with taking history if they didn't know the next question to ask if they didn't know where they were going or wanted help that we'd agree some sort of pre-phrase like oh um you know I'm just gonna have a quick conversation with my mentor or um okay I'm just gonna ask the you know your crewmates at the ECA um oh could you just do a set of obs for me just while I have a chat you know and we do stuff like that or just a, a a cursory turn around and glance and look and you just have to agree something beforehand that just makes the, the mentor aware that the student is is at that point starting to get to the end of where they're comfortable and they just want some help and want you know you to step in a little bit so it's a nice boundary then between you not overstepping and you know coming in when actually they're coping fine um, but also identifying whether they they themselves are, are not not coping yeah Simon I, I agree with all of that and um, I think that's a really good thing to do is to have that keyword and that works really well when the students know their PEDs where it doesn't work quite as well as where you've got sort of three or four sometimes PEDs and you've not built those relationships. The other thing sort of historically in, in medicine in particular in healthcare generally is the sort of general attitude of well I was taught this way and I survived by being um, dropped in it didn't do me any harm and sort of changing attitudes that we've moved on since then and like, like Simon just said that students don't learn they, ju they just freeze so um, just because you survived we don't know how much damage that did or how good a clinician you may have been if you weren't just thrown in the deep end but as, again conversely so if you've got a student that's always hanging back and um, not willing to get involved that needs to be that balance between pushing them forwards and pushing them out of their comfort zone and if they're that timid then sitting down with them afterwards and going right so what's going on what's happening what why is it you don't have knowledge is it the confidence what can we do to build it that way and so finally, this is Barker et al.'s addition to the list. It might be evidence somewhere, but this is something that I, I've definitely seen uh, in practice. And Simon, you and I have discussed this in the past. And this is this idea of, of coddlers, mentors that molly coddle students and don't facilitate that healthy pressure. So it's it's almost the opposite of, of what we've been just been discussing. And you're not facilitating them to make safe mistakes and I think there's this thing that's rife in the ambulance service that is assessing assessing patients as a team or assessing patients as a crew. And when you're not putting your student out there and getting them to direct care and lead care and, and challenging them on their history taking and, and what their differential diagnoses and plan are, and that can result in a mentor that 
thinks the student is better than they are because because they've been masking their errors and and the students made it through the job not recognizing that actually it was the mentor that came up with the plan and it was the mentor that corrected the the critical error and in, in the history take so i think that's something that we definitely need to be wary of and and we've talked about failing to fail a little bit and we've touched on being a gatekeeper to the ambulance service and 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 people that don't get failed until their third year and i think this coddling this monly coddling is is perhaps responsible for masking some some errors that should be picked up earlier we do work as teams and we do work as part of a crew you know and we can bounce ideas off each other and help each other and that's all great but actually you know when it it comes to the point where it compromises and and you're not identifying as you've correctly said josh the the problems for the student and actually you're making all the decisions as a group um that's not going to help the student when they do their first shift on a response car you know having spent half my my career on a car i couldn't rely upon my eca to point out things that i was doing wrong and actually you have to be self-proficient you have to be an autonomous independent practitioner and that's the level you need to reach when you are qualified so you know we need to make sure that you are at that level and you're making all these decisions yourself yeah i've got to say the sort of the coddlers is probably one of the key complaints we get from students where where they're wanting to go through and do an assessment from start to finish and someone sort of comes in halfway through or interjects and I know for myself being a, being a sort of mentor especially in hospital it's case of you can see where you want to get things moving or going and you're sitting there going come on come on come on come on and sometimes you will need to step in but when it's a low acuity patient that you've got time that you can then step back and just allow the student to, to go through and then debrief it afterwards as long as it's safe and back again to those safe mistakes but that is one of our really key complaints from the students is that student that mentors will molly coddle them and not let them do what what they're able to do but that takes confidence from a mentor and that that should not be underestimated the confidence that takes a mentor just to step back and keep quiet and I sit there ringing my, I, I ring my as, as we're doing this I'm sitting here wringing my hands thinking of some of the students over, over the past that's kind of sitting there going oh yes but that really does mm. take confidence so don't want to underestimate that at all and and I think that is also probably linked to mentoring a bit early and we're going to touch on when are you ready to mentor but I, I I think that can be a symptom of a mentor that's been pushed into mentorship too early you know maybe they're still in well in their NQP stage and if I reflect on my own practice as a mentor I definitely was guilty of that early on when I didn't have the confidence in my own practice to let them make those mistakes and and, and let them take a longer history than was required because they've they've got to it takes longer when you're new and yes that's that's definitely something I was guilty of in in my early uh, stages of mentorship where where you there's so many things because you're new and you're worried about on scene times which is another discussion don't go on your soapbox Simon Uh, (laughs) but yeah I I think that's uh, a really difficult thing to to get correct and also at this point I was going to say, um, at this point, the students don't necessarily know what to include and not to include. So you might be sitting there as an educator going, why are, you ask, why are you asking that? And that's really good for your debrief. But there's no point if you then jump in and belittle them and say, oh, you don't need to know that. That's not relevant to this case. The students asking it because they've been either been taught to ask it or believe that it's relevant somewhere in yeah. their trail of thought. So it's unpicking that in your sort of debrief afterwards. And it's quite often where you you are developing that type two thinking, you know, you, your pattern recognition. I've seen this before. You can be sat on the chair thinking, 
why are you asking sort of cardiac chest pain history questions when this is clearly musculoskeletal? Didn't you pick up on that in the history? And that it's allowing them to to develop that and take that history by rote because they've got to assemble all this information. They they don't really have the ability to to filter out what is pertinent and not. So there are a couple of things to bear in mind, and and there's also on the article we discuss a couple of barriers to good mentorship. Now the the article that we've got it from is from nursing, but I'm sure everyone can appreciate the crossover. So uh, a survey of of nursing mentors found the top barrier to to mentorship or good mentorship was lack of time, which I think we can all appreciate. Uh, and then the conflict between the competing demands of providing patient care and being a mentor, and then lack of opportunities to sit down and be a mentor, which is all the case within the ambulance service. There's this train of thought, isn't there, that you're there to attend 999 calls and mentorship is an addition. And the ambulance service as a whole is definitely guilty, I think, of, of not seeing the, of not having the the proper buy-in and attitude towards good mentorship and, and giving you time to facilitate that. So it can be really difficult, but I uh, I don't think we should assume that we won't get time to mentor. And, and I don't think we should assume that the ambulance service managers uh, won't support us in doing that because it absolutely is possible. I've, I've definitely been given time in lieu from my managers to go into uni and have meetings with, with the uni lecturers and the student sit-down meetings and making time to mentor in between jobs. You just sometimes have to be a little bit a little bit clever with how you manage time. Uh, and if you work with a permanent ECA, as I did, I was lucky enough to he my my ECA had really good buy-in to, to mentorship so when we were at hospital he'd be clearing down the truck and that would be 10 minutes in our clear down time that we could debrief that job and you just have to find the time and, and you just have to try and work it into your shift so that you've got dedicated mentorship time. I'm aware that some trusts or no not all do allow time for mentorship on whilst on duty so you can stand down for 10 minutes for instance to say yep I want to go through this x y and z with my with my student although this isn't universal across the UK and it is obviously dependent on surge levels etc and demand and as to whether they're able to facilitate that but some trusts do do it. I think the other thing as well is finding time during the job I think again this comes with mentorship experience but actually something I've noticed a lot when you know working now in hospital with doctors is that they they will actually discuss the learning and discuss the patient in front of the patient and patients generally love it most patients like if you go I'm just going to talk through what's wrong and we're going to discuss and involve the patient with the conversation most patients are really happy to teach learning and you will get a lot of people that will go oh yeah we've all got to learn you go I'm just going to use you to teach if that's all right with a little smile most patients will be really really good for it so if you then sit there and go we've obviously we've talked about Margaret's chest pain She's got this, 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 and this. What are you thinking? What, you know, where where do you think we're going with this? What what do we need to do next? You know, what sort of tests do we need to do? You can actually probe in front of the patients, and I think people feel that they need to hide stuff from patients, and actually they don't. Patients have got a really good perception, and sometimes it's better just to have that conversation in front of the patient. There are times when it's not appropriate, obviously. But I think in most cases, actually, you can have a really good conversation and patients feel like they're getting really good care from it because they feel involved in their care because you're having a three way conversation There's learning going on. The patient's learning stuff. 
and and they feel that you're taking really detailed time. And they're actually because you're talking about the decisions and your your thought process, they're actually thinking, wow, this person one really knows what they're talking about because they're teaching it, and two. I didn't realize that all of my answers, they've been calculating, they've been making these decisions, these thought processes. He's really taking what I'm saying seriously, or she's really taking what I'm saying seriously. And if you've got a permanent mentorship relationship, you can take that one step further, can't you? So you were talking about code words, Simon, for if the student's not quite sure what's going on. And we definitely use that when I was your student, but towards the end of the time, of you being my mentor we'd sort of evolved to a point and you were encouraging me to say to the patient okay well as I said at the start I'm a student paramedic and that's an important thing that that mentors should advocate is that they should ensure their students are introducing themselves to the patient as a student that's an important part of consent but I'd, I'd be saying to the, the, the patient, OK, as, as you heard, uh, I'm a student paramedic, so I'm learning. I'm going to have a conversation with my mentor. It's going to be a little bit of a conversation about you where I just feed back what I've heard and what I'm thinking. We'll discuss the plan and then I'll come back and and uh, and, and let you know what's going on. Is that OK? Patient often says yes. And then you you sort of recite back what you've heard, recite back what your plan is, your you then as the mentor have the ability to feed in and say actually that's not quite right did you probe about this about margaret's chest pain she said she felt dizzy you've not really asked those kind of questions do you want to ask some more i I think that's a really good way to ensure that the student stays empowered to stay in control of the job for what of a better word and just because they've got something wrong as in they wanted to leave at home actually we need to go to hospital they can then go back to the patient and say okay well as you heard we think we you need to go to hospital, so let's do this. And they they keep running that job and keep leading that job. So if you if you can evolve to a point like that with your student, and again it takes a bit of experience on both sides, that that's a really good way to ensure that education and learning is happening as part of the consultation, not as part of this kind of covert thing that's going on underneath behind the the clinical examination. So, so one final thing around barriers to good mentorship is something that I briefly wanted to touch on, which is practice educator fatigue. And this is definitely something I experienced where you have first year, a second year and a third year student. And you, you basically constantly have a student. The only time that you don't have one is maybe during the summer holidays, but then you might be given a brand new ECA or, you, you know, or, or ambulance apprentice. So that can be really tricky where you're constantly educating, you're constantly letting someone take the clinical lead and you can get a little bit burnt out. There are so many demands on um, educators at the moment, especially with all the new pathways coming in. So you've got the apprenticeship, ECAs, the technicians, the new degree apprenticeships. There's also, for those that aren't aware, there's the pre-registration masters, diploma still running in some areas and the BSc. We're aware from, a, you know, from our university that some heads have five or six students that are mentoring at any time, which is absolutely exhausting. We're not quite sure how to balance that um, as an organisation, needing the staff to come through because Ultimately, students are your future colleagues. This is your future workforce that we are helping to produce in, in partnership together. So, but at the same time, um, one of the trusts that we work with locally work with six different universities with a variety of different pathways, and it's balancing all of those competing educational organisations with only a finite resource of, of the mentors. And I don't 
we don't actually have an answer for that currently. And I think part of that is where the newly qualified, where you will become a mentor, comes into it, is just to fill that bucket of a, with a hole in of where we're losing experienced paramedics and we need to we need people to educate the future workforce. But it's not also necessarily a bad thing, but it's just making sure that we don't overload the system with, with learners. And I think you, that is solved by having a conversation with the educational institution, isn't it? And and speaking to the the contact, uh, which I guess is you, Sarah, between the ambulance service and and, and the university, and just saying, look, I'm at, I'm at risk of not of doing a bit of a disservice here to the learner. Yeah. So can you find someone else for my year one for a placement? Because I just need eight weeks where I come to work, just yeah. see patients. And then, then I can recharge. Yes, yeah, so we do work really closely with the educational leads and the local officers, sort of balancing that workload across and the competing demands of all the different universities as well. Because we, we're aware that we are just one of six in the area that we're working in at the moment. So we're going to talk about uh, what to do from day one in a second. But I guess before that, people need to be considering, are they ready to be a mentor? And we've already discussed that there's going to be probably some internal pressure from the employer to to become a mentor and there may be pay scales linked to that so there is going to be that external pressure but as practitioners ourselves and as registrants we need to ask the question are we ready to be a mentor and what kind of things do we need to to be thinking about so I think the first one and again we've already kind of touched on this is to ask yourself are you confident enough to be a mentor are you confident enough in your thought processes and your decisions to take on a student because you're going to be questioned you are going to be challenged you're going to be asked why you've done what you've done and if you aren't sure and you aren't comfortable in your own practice there's a risk that that challenge could be interpreted negatively by you even subconsciously secondly I think it's probably reasonable to ask yourself, do you feel competent in your role? And that doesn't mean knowing exactly what to do in every single situation, because there's always going to be situations you've never found yourself in. My second mentor after Simon had been a paramedic for 20 years, uh, longer than I'd been alive at the time. And we went to jobs that he hadn't been in before. He hadn't been in that situation and hadn't come against that that condition before. So you're not going to know what to do in every single single situation but part of being a a competence paramedic is that no matter what unfamiliar situation you find yourself in you're able to negotiate it and also part of being competent is is being aware of your blind spots and we can talk about Dunning-Kruger in a second but but being aware of what you do and what you don't know in your practice so that you don't pass on your blind spots and your biases to the future generation of of a clinician. I think this is something that happens in the ambulance service a lot. Some things with attitudes get passed on. If you've got mentors that got particularly attitudes, one thing that like really and Josh will know this really irritates me is is ambulance service myth. So things that are passed down from generation to from mentor to student, from mentor to student, from mentor to student that actually don't exist. Things like you know referring to pathways that aren't approved. Well, actually, as a healthcare professional. Unless your trust has a specific policy that says you're not allowed to do certain things, which is is fine. Most trusts don't have those policies. You're a healthcare professional. You can refer to who you feel is appropriate. And actually, mentors 
need to be aware that they're facilitating sometimes poor practice without even knowing it because they're passing on oh well I was always taught that so I'm going to pass it on well actually is what you were taught based in fact and based in evidence is it up to date is it the current thinking or actually is it just stuff that's been passed down with no actual backing at all and the other thing I think about competence is what we come back to what I said earlier about being in it you know having having to do it as part of your NQP process I don't know how you feel, Josh, but when I started mentoring you, I, I personally, on reflection, don't feel that I was experienced enough to have a student. And hopefully I taught you the right attitudes. But actually, I feel that my clinical practice in itself could have had some more honing and more developing before maybe I had a student. What was your thoughts? <laughs> what answer do I give to this, Simon? I think you were a bad very... mentor. <laughs> I think it's very easy to conflate the fact that you're more experienced and a more advanced practitioner now with being unsuitable at the time for taking a a new paramedic student on. And there's going to be different stages throughout your career where it's appropriate to take different levels of student. Clearly, a more inexperienced member of staff, it's suitable for them to take a first-year student because they can still instill the the basic principles of good patient care, knowing your way around an ambulance. You know, All of those really good foundations to paramedic practice can still be instilled by a more junior member of staff. And as they develop and they develop their own clinical acumen and and get a bit more challenging and ask more in-depth questions, then you probably need to be a more in-depth practitioner yourself. So it's it's a difficult call to make. And I think only individual people can, can make that for themselves. So when I started mentorship, I felt at the time that it was very appropriate for me to take first year students because I wanted to and I was looking forward to the challenge and I was looking forward to the learning that Sarah's already touched on that that comes with being a mentor constantly being challenged and asked about stuff in instills good learning principles within yourself but in retrospect the there was a lot more blind spots and there was a lot more weaknesses in my practice that I couldn't see then that I can definitely see now so it's uh it's it's a difficult call isn't it as long as I haven't held your career back too much, we'll, uh, we'll agree it was all right. You haven't held it back any more than just being your friend has done, so it's fine. <laughs> oh dear. The other thing that I think ties in quite nicely is also confidence. And it's not just confidence of knowing everything, but also confidence of being able to say, actually, I don't know something. And, be, and that does take confidence rather than trying to blag it or cover it up, saying, actually, I don't know this. Let, let's check it out. Let's look it up. Let, let's learn together on this one. But that does take confidence to show almost weakness, as some people perceive it, in front of a student or even a patient. But it's OK to say, yeah, actually, we just want to check this and be safe than to, yeah, yeah. to try and muddle through somehow. People Com- often do. And you'll see it quite a lot, I'm sure. Completely agree with you on that. And actually demonstrates competence to be not sure and to identify that and patients won't even see that negatively as long as you address it in the right way and say you know what, actually, I don't know what's wrong here but it's about managing risk it's about managing a pre-hospital care and emergency medicine is about managing uncertainty and we need to be comfortable with that and I think getting your students comfortable with that as well and being open and honest with them you know I don't know what's going on but what I'm happy with is this this and this and we're going to do this yeah. And the other thing I'd say is use your patience. 
working with a background of paediatrics, some of the children have really complex underlying health conditions. Some of them have really rare, rare syndromes that we're the best one in the world. I won't know the details of. But if you ask the parents and go, right, so where is this? How does this work? They're more than willing often to, to tell you what they need, what you need to know, what they think you need to know to give you that information. And they would rather that you do that, your patients or your experts in their conditions, especially for long term chronic conditions. Ask them. Don't be afraid to use them as part of your sort of shared shared learnings or partnership working as well with your patients. There's so much that they'll, they'll teach you. That's a fantastic bit of, of just general clinical advice anyway, isn't it? Because there's there's no amount of learning that you're going to be able to do as a practitioner that is that is going to be more than what that patient or their next of kin has probably done because that's their life, isn't it? And that kind of brings us, you, you know, you've already said it, Sarah, is the next point is being aware of your weaknesses and it's absolutely fine to have weaker points of your practice we all have them and if you don't think you have them you just haven't found them yet so being aware of that and being open with that with your student is really important but I feel that it's also important to have a action plan for that so the the classic example is with ECGs I think a number of my colleagues were were less confident with with ECGs and felt a little bit bamboozled by them and that there was a lot to know and and there is and and it's almost limitless how much depth you can go into with ECGs but it's not acceptable I, I feel for five years and five generations of students for you to say yeah ECGs are a weak point you probably need to go and speak to your lecturers or speak to another mentor about that because I, I, do, I am very uncomfortable with them and I can't teach you about them you know you you need to have an action plan and a, a idea in your head how you're going to get better at that area of practice because it's fine to have them and it's good to know your weaknesses but it's not good to just be okay with them and, and not look to improve them no and on that point as much as improving them one of the best ways to to learn something is to teach it to someone to to take it apart and do it bit by bit and it's, it's surprising how much you'll learn by going through it with someone and it's going back to your point about not not having weak points it's you don't know what you don't know and sometimes the students will highlight that and if you do find yourself saying repeatedly actually I don't I don't know about this I don't know about this this is your weak point listen to that to what you're saying to your student and then teach them those subjects because that's where you're really going to get a handle on it so something else that we need to consider is whether or not we're in the right mental state and the right mental frame of mind in order to take a student. So it's natural that we will all go through ups and downs with the job and there may be periods where we've completely fallen out of love with it and uh, perhaps we don't really want to be at work right now. Perhaps there's stuff going on in our personal lives uh, or perhaps we're just really annoyed with the employer and there's been some you know, employment stuff that's going on and, and we're not in the best headspace to teach someone right now or to mentor someone right now what we really want to avoid is bringing a student in into placement who has really impassioned with the job who's worked really hard to be there they may have given you know two or three years of their life just working to get into uni at this point or or to get a job with the ambulance service and get onto a, a student paramedic apprenticeship program and what you really don't want to do is then pass on a ton of bad attitudes to this person and 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 uh, really crush their spirit because that's not fair to them and it's not fair to you as a mentor to be expected to to take them on and Sarah you were making some really good points about 
acting as a as a support for the student because they're going to be incredibly stressed as well, aren't they? Yeah. So sort of going out on placement, the student anxiety before they go out on placement, we just goes through the roof and um, they're really excited, especially first year, first placement. They really want to go out. This is what they want to be doing. But bearing in mind, these guys often living, especially the younger ones, but all they're living away from home for the first time. They're having to look after themselves. And this may be their first experience of work as well. So they don't really know what it's going to be like on top of this strange environment of the sort of pre-hospital, um, pre-hospital ward. So there's a lot going on there. And you may find yourself coming in as, as a bit of a counsellor as well, because they bring in with bring with them that those stresses that I've just mentioned, plus their sort of loved lives, their friendship groups. And COVID in particular has had a real big impact on university students in particular, building friendship groups that they would normally, where they've not been able to meet their entire cohort. They've not been able to socialise in the student union bar in the same way they would. So they haven't got those support networks they normally would have. So they may end up relying on, on you as a mentor more than they normally would. So so it's a case of do you have that capacity in yourself at the moment of everything going on in your own life to be able to support the students in, in the way that they, they might need? And they do sometimes need more than historically they would normally. They may open up to you. It's 10, 12 hours in the back of an ambulance is a long time to, to be with someone. So it may be that they feel comfortable with you to tell, tell you things, in which case, rather than managing it all on your own, do come and speak to your educational links, speak to your link lecturers, um, people in similar roles to myself at universities. Do, do speak to them. We can offer support and guidance. Also, the student support services within the universities as well. So the students aren't just sent out into the world um, with no safety net. There, there are support services there. It's just finding them. And also, if they're second years onwards, there's the ambulance services, charities as well that will support them. And you as well, if things are really getting a bit deep. And if it does get a bit deep, then you're okay to take a step back and involve our professionals. I think as the College of Paramedics have identified, there is a considerable amount of mental health in the ambulance service and amongst paramedics. And I think that we need to be, as mentors, we need to be aware of this. We're aware of it with our colleagues and ourselves, but yeah, aware of it with our students as well. And actually, what we don't want is is the deteriorating mental health as a student to go unrecognised. So I completely agree with you. We need to refer these people to, to these support services and, and give them the support they need and involve the university early if we have concerns about the mental health of the student. So finally, the, the last question I think is is probably worth asking ourselves is, are you qualified to be a mentor? Uh, and clearly, you'll have a base registration. But what I'm talking about is is whether or not you've done appropriate mentorship training. So lots of trusts will offer a mentorship module or a, or a course. And, and I believe, I think nationally, that's being built into the NQP program. So as part of getting your band six and passing NQP, you do some form of mentorship training. And these can actually be really good ways of accessing top up degrees or, or level seven modules if you're looking at masters and stuff in the future. So they're really useful modules to get from an academic CV aspect and, and developing your own career. But they are really, really useful modules for being a mentor. And I started mentorship nearly well just under a year before I actually undertook a mentorship module because the the waiting list was so long for them and the process wasn't as formalized when I started mentoring and by doing the mentorship module it completely changed my style of mentorship 
and my attitudes towards supporting and educating students. And it and it revealed to me a number of errors and mistakes that I'd made with uh, with students previously, and 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 some and, and changed a lot of my attitudes towards towards mentorship. So they aren't just box ticking courses. If you engage with them, they're really really useful, valuable courses for turning yourself into a into a good mentor as much as I have a vested interest working for a university in in getting mentors through I I found myself when I I was doing my mentorship course for for nursing can't echo enough what you've just said because it does give you that sort of theoretical underpinning knowledge of 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 educational theory and what you're doing and why you're doing it and how best support your patient um your patients and your students Let's talk about day one. The the days here, your new student has been allocated to you and you're about to embark on your first placement together. You're excited that you're finally a mentor. Where do we start? Where do you go from there? Well, I think it's probably a really good idea to touch base before shift. So we all know what the modern ambulance service is like. If you wait until your first shift together, the student will get there. You'll probably introduce names, book on, and then it might well be nine hours, 40 miles from base in a hospital cubicle before you've even got a minute to get to know your student and, and, and you know, explain what's going on. Because uh, not long after booking on and checking the truck, you're you're going to be going job to job. Sarah, you were saying it, it sort of varies between educational provider. Students may email you in advance. I know when I was a mentor, I got the student's name and their email address sent to me. So the onus was sort of on us to email the student and touch base. But e- either way, I think the message yeah. is getting contact somehow, isn't it? Yeah, and um, we're, we're beginning to encourage our students to, to make contact in advance. But it just operationally... At the moment, especially with COVID and the mental and the mental situation, is so complex that mentors are changing at quite late notice, which we appreciate isn't best isn't best practice for either a mentor or students. So we, it's something that we're working on with sort of the, the trust that we work with. But it is good. It is it really does waylay the students some of the students' anxieties if they've spoken to their head beforehand and at least know where they're going, know what their name is, and have had a little bit of a chat, whether that's via email, via text message, even telephone conversation if possible. But going back to what we said earlier about some um, heads having five, six, seven students potentially, we appreciate that that's not always possible to to split your time across that many students. But just a little bit of hi, how are you doing? I'm so and so I'm working out of this station normally work on this sort of vehicle and you probably need to explain especially first year what sort of vehicle you're on because they don't know what a DSA is so sometimes it's worth just making sure you're really clear in communication if you can meet them before a shift that that would be amazing but I think that's possibly beyond expectations especially with Covid at the moment. I think that's a uh, that's a good point actually because terminology changes as you go across the country so I, I don't even know what a DSA is I presume it's a, a what I call a DC a double crewed ambulance it's a, yeah. yeah so is that yeah. yeah it is and that's a regional colloquialism yeah as well. absolutely and you know it's good to, to familiarize your student with you know local things and I always used to like to invite my students in and and I know again this comes down to the fact that you're doing probably doing it in your own time you might get some time for mentorship that you can use but not everyone does and I appreciate that um, I used to like to invite my students in just for, you know, have a coffee in the crew room 
and you know just maybe a couple of days before the first shift just for half an hour an hour go through the portfolio go through their learning objectives go through what they want to achieve maybe talk about the station talk about you know i think some of the things we're going to talk about in a sec josh like ground rules and stuff like that um and just make sure they've got contact details what to do if they're ill those sorts of things just to cover a few things so when you've got time and you're not under pressure of being chucked out on the first category one call at one minute past the start time with your shift yeah I think that's really good to do and and that's something that I definitely tried to do I had the luxury of working from a single truck station that was quite quiet and quite rural so we weren't trying to have a meeting on a very busy super hub station where there's 30 trucks in it and and crews coming and going and and there's no quiet place to do it so I recognize the the notion of a, a coffee and and showing the student rounds may not be appropriate for for everyone and certainly covid complicates things trying to minimize um you know trying to 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 minimize the number of people on station one day when covid is is but a distant memory hopefully people might be in a position to do that and and that's something that i think is really beneficial for you and for the student if you can just meet up on station so I used to do it before a night shift if we could so I'd come in sort of 45 minutes or so early before a night shift before I had to take over from the day crew and then just meet the student there you can give them the access codes to this to the station which they may not have been given there's nothing worse than if you've got a 6am start in the winter the students sitting outside half an hour in their car freezing because they can't get access to the to the station to use the loo and make themselves a coffee and stuff so show them around show them where the the, the kit room is 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 really helpful uh, and helps to ease those those initial nerves doesn't it if if they've seen the station and they've seen the environment that they're going to be there on their first couple of days it helps to ease them into uh, into the environment so it limits what's new on on day one and I think that's really key to helping them to perform is to to make them as comfortable as possible as quickly as you can so uh, let's move on to the next bit which is establishing some ground rules so it can either be done as part of that initial conversation or perhaps at some point on the first shift or the first couple of shifts and this is an example of one of those things that I didn't do prior to my mentorship course and it's something that they mentioned establishing ground rules and I thought I'll try that and it really really helped me and helped the student so I had a list of things that I wanted to cover as part of conversation I've got a memory like a sieve most days so um, I, I just wanted to go through various things with each student to make sure that we covered them I covered things like what to do with scene safety punctuality on shift and sickness making the point that you can ping me a text if you're going to be sick just so I'm not waiting for you so that I'm not worried about you punctuality that we need to get there 15 20 minutes early to check the truck and to book drugs out and stuff like that talking a little bit about professional issues and mitigating circumstances which the uni will also have have guidance on that's the time that I kind of discussed about professional conduct and online presence I know different trusts and it's a bit of a sensitive issue isn't it different trusts have different attitudes to what is and isn't acceptable social media usage I know there's certain trusts that that encourage tweeting and 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 social media stuff in in my practice I don't like to do that and I was very clear with the students that 
I don't tweet about the job other than professional issues and, and you know, not, oh, we, we've been to this RTC today because it, it just is a nightmare and, and making it clear to them, although that they're responsible for their conduct, I, as their mentor, I'm also a bit responsible for their professional conduct and what they do reflects on me. So that's probably a good conversation to have and and probably around interactions on social media between one another. So, Simon, you were very clear with me that, that we weren't going to be Facebook friends, were we, whilst I was no, a student? Yeah, not, I think not while you are mentor and student. And then obviously afterwards our relationship changed and we're now friends and actually we now are. I think social media is a really powerful tool. Like me and you, Josh, use it regularly. We tweet, we create, you know, Paramedicate. We run case studies on there that are probably loosely based on patients that have been seen throughout careers, but actually they're mostly made up or changed and tweaked, so they're not identifiable. And I think it's really valuable for learning, but I do think we need to be we need to be so careful. Everything needs to be in line with HGPC, College of Paramedic Guidance, your trust guidance on social media. And I think there's certain things that are acceptable, like learning. Um, and I think there's certain things that aren't. And one of my bugbears is personally is people like taking selfies and like uniforms and uploading them or especially taking like pictures in people's houses even if it's like oh I've got to cuddle this dog today and they're in the patient's house I just I I know I appreciate you know you're taking a picture of a dog in a house but you don't know what's in the background you know I've seen like EPCRs in the background and stuff like that that have been put down on the side and I just think you need to be so careful just don't don't do anything that's going to jeopardize your entire career for a stupid mistake just so you can put a selfie of yourself up on online keep it professional keep it to learning keep it confidential nothing I I don't think anything live is is ever a good idea that's my personal experience and and obviously as you said Josh there are different trusts that do like to to tweet live and do things like that to encourage their work I I, I'm not sure my opinion on on that I, I think it can be dangerous so I think just just be really careful about use of social media, but express that to your students explicitly. Yeah, no, I'm a massive advocate for social media because there's so much out there. The med Twitter handle and the phone med, there's so much learning, as you say, but it is also an absolute minefield. And the other thing that people really do need to understand about social media is that everything is permanent. It may only be out there for a few seconds, but a screenshot will then live forever. So it's it's permanent. So be careful what you say. Don't write anything you wouldn't want any your lecturers or patients to see or your future bosses because things do come back to um, haunt you. And also just to be aware that on places like Twitter, your lecturers are on there too. And we do see um, what, what you're saying about your, your mentors, about the course, etc. So nothing's private. And all it takes is for someone to share a screenshot and and you could potentially end up in trouble so just think before you tweet yeah if, you, if you're going to say anything make sure it's something that you would say to those people's face so you know i, I will be yeah. have negative and constructive criticism about how the ambulance service does things on social media in terms of i i don't like how there is say um, a lack of education because of pressures and, and service demands but i will say that in a professional way that hopefully comes across and i would say that to any ambulance service chief executive to any person who's responsible for education that I feel that this should be done differently because I want it be, to be constructive. And I guess the other thing to be doing during this ground rules conversation is you can be looking at the student's portfolio and matching 
what they have to achieve and what they're expected to achieve in that placement or that year and, and discussing how you're going to monitor them on that. So if the pad says the student must be able to take a full history using the medical model, well, then you need to make it clear with them. Do you know what the medical model is? This is what that means to me. And this is what I expect you to do by the end of placement and, and making it quite clear. And that's that's good not only for them so that they know what they have to achieve, but for you as a mentor to refer back to that if you're in a situation where unfortunately they might be failing a placement or not performing or, or needing, a, needing an action plan or something like that, you have very clear specifications to say why the student is or isn't achieving in your mind what they should yeah, the other thing I would like to say about that is that different universities have different curriculums, obviously, so their PAD documents are going to be different, what their students have been taught in each year is different. So you may be really au fait with one education provider, and then you get someone from somewhere else. Do not assume that they've had the same teaching in the same order, and that their PADs are going to be even remotely similar, because the courses really do vary. We'll get to the same end point, but the routes that they take to get there are many and winding. So make sure you're aware of each different provider's PADs and curriculum as well. So just finally then to, to wrap up, let's have a, a little bit of a conversation around educational responsibilities. So we've already said that the, the job of a, a practice educator is multifaceted and your responsibilities are going to be slightly different from student to student, but there is definitely an educational component and there is definitely an element of, of your responsibility as a practice educator to undertake some learning with the student. And that can that can occur in various different ways. So one of the ways that I found quite useful to test my students and to for, for, for me to know where they are in their in their sort of clinical development and their clinical thought process is we would before meal breaks would try to fit in sort of 10 or 15 minutes of clinical discussion so my men and as I've already said my uh, fantastic ECA colleague had great buy-in to educating students so he would restock the truck and get that ready and that would just give me and the student 10 minutes to sort of are their heads in on the whiteboard discuss something clinically or run them through a, a clinical sort of case study and we'd just discuss that or they take a history take off me or, or, or whatever it was we always make time within the day to put some educational uh, educational material together the other thing that we would insist on doing is that the student uses their time on the way to jobs to get benefit from it so there's obviously first placement it's exciting for them looking out the window and us uh, driving on blue lights and, and dodging around traffic but certainly as they're having to develop their clinical acumen they should be having a think on the MDT or having a think about the details that come down on the MDT and and thinking about their, their chest pain history take and if there's a given clinical problem or a given clinical syndrome they need to be looking that up and given consideration to how that might fit into their differential picture and if it was a long enough journey I worked very rurally so you know we sometimes have half an hour 40 minute blue light runs we we would be quizzing them on that and, and almost doing a, a dummy history take on the way to jobs so there's lots of different ways you can build education into those times you're not seeing patients. This is the key component to link practice to theory um, and bring those two together. So 
once you've seen a patient, and as you said, Josh, while we're sort of re-kitting, restocking, cleaning trolleys and stuff, having that conversation with the students and going, right, so how did that patient present? Why did we bring this head injury to hospital, whereas the one we saw two days ago we left at home? Are you aware of the NICE guidelines for the head injury assessment? Okay, and then signposting them to further learning. So go and look at those tonight, and I want you to come back in tomorrow and we'll talk about them. Why did that head injury stay at home? Why did that head injury go to hospital? And, and why did we make those decisions? What, what other things do we need to be looking out for? What other things do you need to ask in your, your history? What other examinations do you need to do to, to lead you towards that? Did this well, but actually you miss this part of your examination, which is really important. That's how we link practice to, to theory. Well, that's been another Mammoth podcast, and as usual, we have far exceeded the time that we had been expecting it to. So let's summarise. Mentoring is an expansive role. It requires us to support students, to act as an educator, to act as an oversight, and sometimes to act as emotional support. So we need to ensure that we're ready to take on that challenge with adequate experience and adequate confidence in our role. It can be really helpful to meet up with the student before your first shift together and in this time you can get to know them, show them around and work to establish ground rules. It's really important to make time for education on shift and that can be really really tricky but it is absolutely possible and we need to tailor that education for exactly what our students need based on the assessments we've been making on placements. And finally, it's it's really important to have clearly defined expectations for the student based around their PAD document and where their educational provider says they should be at this stage of their course. And that's a really important step to help us with the topic in our second episode, should we need it, which is all around failing students and instigating action plans. So we're going to be covering that next month and Simon and Sarah are going to be joining me to talk about that topic. Hopefully we'll stick time uh, a little bit better. As always, you can find the article to accompany this podcast on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk. And there you can find our contact details and our past episodes. All that's left to say is thank you for listening. Join us for the next one next month where we'll be looking at failing and action plans. So goodbye for now.